song of the grass-roofed hermitage. I built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he does not live. Realms worldly people love, she does not love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. We picked this sutra, the song of the grass-roofed hermitage, for this session. It was written by Sekito Kisen, Shirto Shichan, who lived in China between 700 and 790. At a young age, he became a student of the great Zen master Hui Neng, the sixth ancestor in China. For a short time before Hui Neng died, then he later became a disciple of Hui Neng's successor, Chan Wan Xing Shi, and ultimately he became the successor of that teacher. Teaching at Nan Tai Temple on Mount Nanyue in Hunan in China. There's a story about Shi Tao's teacher when a monk came to study. With him, the master asked, where are you coming from? And the student said, from Kao Chi. What's new in Kao Chi, the master said. When the student remained silent, the master said, tiles and pebbles are still in your way. The student asked, do you have true gold to give to others? The master said, even if I had some, how would you hold on to it? We know very little about Shitu, who wrote this sutra. We do know that he wrote the Song of the Grass-Roofed Hermitage and also the Sandokai, which we call the identity of relative and absolute. So this is a wonderful example of someone whose vows seem to maybe bear little fruit because the scholars write that Shirto did not appear to have been very influential or famous during his lifetime. He lived a reclusive life, perhaps in a grass hut, for part of his life, and he had relatively few disciples. So we might think what has happened to his vows. For decades after his death, his lineage remained obscure. 
It was only known in a small part of China, the province where he taught, that he even existed. But later he became famous because of his disciples and his disciples' disciples and so on. So three generations after Shirto came whom we know, teachers we know by the name in Japanese, Yaktoksan, and Tozan Ryokai. Tozan is the toe of Tozan is the toe of Soto of our lineage. And five generations later came the famous Master Ummen. And twelve generations later, in Shurto's lineage, came the great Master Ehe Dogen. So this is a beautiful example of someone who lives their vows. And looking from the outside, you might think, well, there's not much fruit from all that work. But we don't know how a vow, which always continues through space and time, will manifest even after we're gone. Everything that we do matters. Everything that we do matters. Even when we can't see that it matters. So in his lifetime, people would have said he was maybe a country bumpkin living in a little temple or a hermitage in the mountains. And now we consider him a great Zen master who wrote two of the beautiful chants that we chant every day and that are chanted around the world. So which is right? obscure or great. This song of the grass-roofed hermitage is something to take in with the heart, like all sutras, not to try to analyze with the mind, but to take in with the heart. Like in the Catholic tradition, Lectio Divina, where you read a passage from the scripture and then contemplate it and see what words emerge in your heart and flower perhaps with more words or perhaps with images or memories. So we take in the sutra with our heart and we let it work on us. We contemplate it we realize it has many layers. And many of those layers might not be obvious to us now, but might open later as our life flowers. The sutra also will flower with it. I built a grass hut where there's nothing of value when it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. But we could hear this from the point of view of our body, our aging body. 
We worked hard on this body, most of us, trying to keep it healthy, clothing it, bathing it, trimming its nails, cutting its hair, decorating it, making it handsome or beautiful as much as we could, feeding it the right food, making sure it got sleep, bringing it to Sashin. We built this grass hut, but it's a grass hut. It's impermanent. And the older we get, the more we realize that. How long would a grass hut last after it's been abandoned when it's not being repaired? One or two winters and all trace would be gone. And we know that's true true of our body too, even if it's buried in the ground, even if it's embalmed and put in a lead-lined casket. We now know that it's not permanent. Of no value. After we've died, of what value is our body? It's 90% water. The water will return to the earth. We were only a temporary storage container for mostly water and a few minerals. Not much of value. Somebody wanted to buy those minerals. And then we have to think about what value was it for us to have lived in this body. Fresh weeds appeared. Always something is appearing as a body ages. Someone said yesterday, nettles. Some of what appears are nettles. It seems that we, a new, a new pain springs up, and at first it's it's alarming, and then we adjust to it, and we put it in our suitcase full of pains, and go on, and then another pain or ache appears, and it's a surprise, and we worry about it, and then we adjust to it, and we put it in the suitcase, and the suitcase gets more and more full of aches and pains and stiffness, things that we can't do that we used to do. Seems like there's always something hurting or not working right as we get older. And fresh weeds keep appearing and surprising us. Now it's lived in, covered by weeds. What choice do we have? What choice do we have? This is the body we've been given. We have to live in this increasingly unkempt and untamable body. I remember when I felt I could tell my body to do something and it would do it. It would do my bidding. No longer true. We can look at these lines from the point of view of our life. We built up a life. We built up a personality. We added skills and talents to our life. Jobs, recreations. Think about all the things that you've bought in your lifetime. From the time you first had money, maybe a small allowance, 
and you could go to the store and buy something for 5 or 10 or 25 cents. Just run through in your imagination all the things that you've bought in your lifetime and put them in a pile in your mind. Imagine how big that pile would be, including cars and furniture and paintings and clothing, vitamins, food. Put it all in a pile in your mind. And then add everything that you have made, everything that you created, pieces of art, anything you've written, anything you've built, woven, sewed, anything that you've created in your lifetime. It could be as big as a building that you built. It could be as as small as a meal that you made and consumed or someone consumed. And put that all in the pile too. All the things bought, all the things made. Now imagine all the meals that you've eaten, all the food that's passed through your body. And put that in the pile too. Now imagine all the lectures that you've given, all the conversations you've had with people, all the PowerPoints you've made, all the movies you've watched, all the books you've read, all the hobbies you've had. Put them all in a pile, in that same pile. It's a huge pile. It's a staggering pile of what we have built in our lifetime. And now, fast forward 50 years after your death. You've died. Your body's been dispersed, however, buried or cremated. And it's now 50 years later. Look back at that pile. What's left of that pile? Now fast forward a hundred years after your death. What's left of that pile? Two hundred years, what's left of that pile? Even if you built houses, even if you built apartment buildings, we know how quickly those buildings are turned over. What would last? What is of lasting value? In 200 years, 500 years, if someone were shown a picture of you in 200 years, would they know who you were? Even your relatives. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. We can watch after our death that pile disappear. But as we built up that pile and tried to make ourselves comfortable in our life, fresh weeds appeared, new things to do, to add to the to-do list, striving, trying to accomplish, trying to build and make more. But as we come to this place in life, we realize that we have to begin to relax that our life isn't driven by product. 
being becomes more and more important than doing and making. When my mother was in a retirement center, I used to watch to learn about aging, all of the people around her, to look at what to cultivate, how to prepare for old age. And it was clear that the people who were living in their memories of who they had been and what they had done were interesting the first ten times you heard the story, but not after that. Or the people who were living in their critical minds, despairing about the world, were not fun to be with. But the people who had cultivated the heart, even if they were absent in their mind, had forgotten their name, had no idea who you were, or where they were, if they had cultivated their hearts, it was wonderful to be with them. If they were relaxed in the world and at ease in their life, able to enjoy eating, able to enjoy a nap, living calmly, then it was wonderful to be with them. So we have to ask as we go forward, what will we cultivate? What do we want to build? What will be of lasting value? What will make the lives of those who have to care for us as we get old and perhaps senile? perhaps agitated, perhaps bedridden, incontinent. What can we do now that will make that a more relaxed time for us and for others who are caring for us? Someone once asked me, Chosen, what, how can we practice for the time when we might get Alzheimer's? What kind of practice can we do now? Or how will we practice when we get dementia? And I said, when we get demented, then we're other people's practice. But wouldn't we like to make that an easy practice for them? I built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's lived in covered by weeds. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. So we can see this from the point of view of our practice, our cultivation of our mind, our heart-mind. We realize in practice that our thoughts actually are of very little value. Most of our thoughts are ridiculous useless, amusing sometimes, but of very little value. We've learned through practice how to settle the mind, even empty the mind. 
but thoughts like weeds keep springing up. Does that become a source of frustration, or do we keep on cultivating? Or do we relax and enjoy a nap, and stop fighting the thoughts, but rather turn the mind away from the thoughts, away from the worries, as we do in a nap? When we take a nap, we let go of the world. We let go of whatever is happening around us, whatever we're concerned or worried about. We let go of our whole life in complete trust. And we let go. We turn away from the outer world and we relax completely and take a nap. So simple. But it's beautiful. Beautiful. And we all know that when we can't take a nap, it's because thoughts keep invading. So can we take that same turning of attention that we know how to do so well when we take a nap or fall asleep and use it in our practice? It's so relaxing when we can open the mind door to that place of stillness, silence, and peace that is fundamental. Fundamental under, around, and between everything. When we can learn to let go of thoughts, step aside from thoughts, open the door of awareness into that completely reliable place of stillness, silence, and peace which is always available. Relax. Inside, outside, or in between, where is that place? Is it inside? Is it outside? Is it in between? Inside, outside, or in between can also refer to our practice. Inside is our small mind, all of our knots of thoughts about our own predicament. Inside is also the details of our world, which we can't ignore. We can't be sitting all the time. We have to pay the mortgage, even here at the monastery. We have bills to pay and people to register for sashin. And people imagine we live this tranquil life floating about the monastery all the time. But we have to take care of those details using our individual minds and bodies. And then in practice, we enter what we think is outside, the big mind, the expanded awareness. That's so refreshing to enter that space of timelessness, no boundary, no up, no down, no age, no infirmity. Everything that we considered samsara becomes nirvana. So beautiful. But we can't get stuck there either. We can't walk around in a blissed out state and forget to eat or forget to fix the meals for the people who are here for retreats. Oh, sorry, I didn't make dinner. I was in the realm of no time. Living as human beings, we have to 
live in both realms. Move flexibly in between, back and forth, and not get stuck in between. In between. Oh, I wish I were there instead of here. Sitting Zazen, we think, oh, I really want to see that new movie. It got such a great review. I'd much rather be there than here. And then we go to the movie, and it turns out to be a lousy movie, and we're so upset. We wasted our money and our time, and we could be sitting at home doing Zazen. (laughs) Not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Liberation, we use that word a lot in Zen practice. Liberation means the freedom to move amongst all worlds. I remember when my Dharma brother, Bernie Glassman, was saying, don't get stuck to Zen clothing. You should be comfortable in a tuxedo, in a formal, in rags, in blue jeans, in your robes. Whatever is appropriate, that's liberation. To be able to respond to what comes forward with complete freedom. Places worldly people live, he does not live. Realms worldly people love, she does not love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. Places worldly people live, that could refer to our body. Everyone has one. But our attitudes towards our bodies are different. Our attitude can be, something's wrong and I need to fix it. That's endless pursuit. Anger at our body if something goes wrong. Or it could be, I don't love my body and I I have to spend lots of time and money decorating it and modifying it. Or it could be, I really hate my body and I punish it and I misuse it. In our practice, we appreciate our body as the means for enlightenment. We send it metta. We take proper care of it like a gift. A gift soon to be returned back to the earth and the sky. Places worldly people live, he does not live. Could refer to the monastery. People encourage us to go on vacation or go on sabbatical. But actually, this is the place we love to live. And it is yours. You could have gone on a nice vacation to Hawaii or on a hike or on a camping trip this weekend or gone to a seminar and learned a lot. But instead, you came here, a place that might be mystifying to spend time in to most people. Places worldly people live can refer to our mind. So many people live in anger, frustration, reactivity, jealousy, trying to make a world the way they want it to be, as if their way is right and the hundreds of millions of other ways that people want the world to be aren't right. They have endless discussions of everything that's wrong in the world. Of course we don't ignore what's wrong in the world. 
We live in the world, but we are not of the world. An important distinction. We accept it as it is. We don't get caught up in its craziness, but we accept it as it is, as samsara. And, if we shift our view through practice, as nirvana. Who could imagine living in this world as nirvana? Places worldly people live, he does not live. What she loves, what the world loves, she does not love. We have to accept it as it is, love it as it is. Live in it as it is. Acceptance is the foundation, the foundation for change. We live in it, but we see it differently. We live in it, but we love it differently. Though the hut is small, through practice we know when the mind is small. We know when the mind has collapsed into self-centered view. We know when we have to use what we call the small mind. Okay, I have to make plane reservations. Which plane? If it leaves at 6.30 a.m., what time am I going to get to the East Coast? That's useful. That's wonderful to have a mind that can figure that out. But we don't want that to be our only mind. We want to be able to catch ourselves... We want to be able to... (laughs) This is catching me. (laughs) We want to be able to catch ourselves when we get stuck. We want to live in a timely realm and a timeless realm. So that pulls me back into the timed realm. (laughs) Because giving a Dharma talk, you get into the timeless realm. We want to be able to catch ourselves when the timed realm starts causing us worry and be able to let go to let our mind expand when the mind opens and opens and opens in awareness then the entire world is there the hut is small but it contains the entire world our individual mind is so small there's so much we don't know so many experiences we haven't had So many talents we don't have. And yet, in our practice, it contains the entire world. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present. Will this hut, will this body perish or not? Of course it will. But what will not perish? Does anything continue? As Mushan asked in her opening talk, what continues? Does anything continue? What is the deathless that the Buddha spoke about? The Buddha said, yes, something continues, but I can't tell you what it is because you wouldn't understand. We have to find that out for ourselves. What continues after we die Not knowing 
Not knowing is fundamental to our practice. Lucian once asked me years ago to give a talk in Corvallis, and I said, what would you like me to talk on? And she said, well, talk on what happens after death. So I went down to Corvallis and sat down, and everyone's with great anticipation listening to the talk, and I said, I've been asked to talk on what happens after death. This will be a very short talk. I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. Because if I've died before, I can't remember what happened. But I do know this. I know that Zazen is the best preparation for death. Because in Zazen, moment after moment, we accumulate, we build, and we let it go. We build a little hut in our mind of what we're worried about or concerned about now. Or we build a vast hut that contains everything. In our practice, our mind opens and we're in this wonderful space. But it's impermanent. We have to let it go and move into the next moment. We build, we let go. We build, we let go. We walk forward innocently, hands open, into the next moment, again, again, and again. And then when death comes, when that door called death opens, we walk through the same way, not knowing, but in total faith. Because we have walked through that door of not knowing, not knowing what the next moment will bring, a million, million times. So please, with this little grass hut of a body, with this enormous grass hut of our true mind, continue this practice, moment by moment, stepping into the unknown. <laughs>